0: The passage that we're going to be studying this morning is reasonably long, so we're going to look at it in two chunks, and Catherine is going to read the first part for us from Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands ceremonial washing, holding to traditional tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their foods with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me, is Corban, that is, a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing can en- that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of a man's heart- men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, Envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a man and make him unclean. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the little children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to take his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them, do not tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Catherine's going to bring the second part of a passage to us now, and then David's going to come and speak to Mark chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd had gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place, can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for miracles, for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets of pieces. Did you pick up? Twelve. They replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand?
1: This is uh, week six of our journey with Jesus through Mark's Gospel. Uh, we're up to chapter ten. So if you do have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to it? Uh, in the pew Bibles, it's page one thousand and ten. Uh, we as a church are trying to revisit each incident in the hope that every contact we have with Jesus will leave a trace of Jesus on us and in us and with us. What I'm simply doing in this series is telling stories, uh, but telling them really quickly. So let's begin at verse 1. A delegation has been sent from headquarters in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and teachers of the law have come on a a fault-finding rather than a fact-finding mission. And this is their third clash with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. They've met with Jesus on two other occasions, and the two subjects they've addressed on those previous occasions are fasting and Sabbath observance. But this time the issue that arises concerns the handling and the eating of food with dirty or unclean hands. Now, this is not an explicit scriptural issue. Take a look at verse 3, because it clearly states that this was a ceremonial tradition of the elders issue. Now, scripture versus tradition is a tricky one. It was then, it is now, and it evermore shall be, I reckon. And I'm not going to say anything else on it. But the Pharisees had a whole pile of these traditions, literally hundreds of them. And so the problem they have at this moment in time is, Jesus, why is it that your disciples are blatantly ignoring some of these traditions? Now Jesus, being Jesus, sees right through their performance-related religion, where image is everything. The Pharisees, you see, loved to be seen. They loved to be seen by others as having everything together. And so via all these numerous external rituals and regulations, such as ceremonial hand washing, they wanted people to see, and not only to see, but to comment on how righteous they were, how holy these people were. Outward appearance was of primary concern. Inner reality was a secondary issue, or maybe even a non-issue. And Jesus does two things first off he calls them a bunch of play actors hypocrites people who pretend to be something they're not it's a chilling description this is the only time the word appears in Mark's gospel now Jesus uses it 15 times in Matthew 4 times in Luke but this is the only time it crops up in Mark's gospel and we live in a, a media saturated society And we're used to seeing great actors and great actresses on stage and screen who come across as so authentic and so genuine and so real in the role that they play that sometimes it's hard to get your head around the fact that they are only acting. Well, the Pharisees had this down to a fine art. They were good. But Jesus wasn't fooled. They performed impressively. There's no doubt about that. But that's exactly all it was. It was just a performance. It wasn't real. And so Jesus could see behind the lines. He could see behind the routines. And right into their hearts. And so as Jesus looks directly into their hearts. He calls it as it is. He says you hypocrites. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But names will never harm me. It's a familiar saying. And yet... If Jesus was to say that about any of us, I reckon it would be painful. I reckon it would hurt. And I wonder did it hurt these Pharisees at this moment. The second thing Jesus does is quote scripture. He quotes the writings of an Old Testament prophet. And he directs those writings at this delegation. And Sarah's alluded to these words already. These people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain; their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. You see, whenever it came to the Pharisees, Jesus never missed and hit the wall. He always got it, bang on. He got straight to the heart of the matter, which, as we'll see in a moment, and as Sarah has said this this morning, was a matter of their heart. And Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. And he confirmed, listen, there's nothing spiritual. There's nothing authentic about your religion. It's just an empty facade. It's actually just lip service. And it's all about exalting man. It's not about exalting God. And therefore, all the worship that you bring is just in vain. And I'm seeing through it. Recently, I I referred to... Matt Redmond's book, Inside Out Worship. Which is a good book, but it's the title that grabs me. Because I think it's a title that captures the kind of worship that God the Father seeks. Worship that comes from the heart. From the inside out. And Jesus could see that the worship of this group of men just lacked depth. It was insincere. Or maybe it was just sincerely wrong. And he was unimpressed by their entire show, and therefore his stinging comments were direct and they were unambiguous. But Jesus wasn't finished, because what he then goes on to do is he goes on to spell out for them exactly where they have been going and where they had gone wrong. And he cites three areas. Verse 8, he says this, You have let go of the commands of God, and you're holding on to the traditions of men. In other words, you have substituted your own word for God's word, and that still happens. It's happening all the time around us. The second thing he says is in verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. In other words, you have also rejected... Not only substituted, but you're actually rejecting God's word in favour of your own word. Again, happening all around us all the time. And the third thing he says is this. You nullify, verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. In other words, you are robbing God's word of its divine power via your preoccupation with man-inspired traditions. Again, happening all around us. Now what Jesus isn't saying is that tradition is bad, that all tradition is bad, and that there's no place for it. Forms and tradition can be helpful. In fact, they can enhance your worship, they can encourage your faith, but whenever people become more passionate about tradition, more devoted to tradition, and to form than to obeying God's explicit and direct word, then Jesus identifies a massive problem, and that's the problem he had with these guys. It was all about tradition. It was all about form. It was all about what was seen on the outside. And I know that we we often go on about this. But the importance of knowing God's word, the importance of engaging with God's word, meditating on God's word, applying God's word, reflecting on God's word, living God's word can never be overemphasized. This has got to be our reference point. This has got to be the lens through which we filter our faith and our practice. The moment we replace this, ditch this, tame this, the moment we add to this is the moment that we as a church are heading for disaster. And Jesus then gathers the crowd around him in order to explain the true source of spirituality. The bottom line is, according to Jesus, it's got nothing to do with the external. It's all about the heart. And again, we're back, or we're about to echo some of the thoughts during that series at the beginning of the year that Sarah's referred to. Because Jesus says in verse 15, nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. I love the way the message puts this or phrases this. It's not what you swallow that pollutes your life. It's what you vomit. That's the real pollution. You see, sin doesn't come into our lives from the outside. Sin is a heart issue. And the crowd disperses. And Jesus goes inside with his disciples. And at this moment, the disciples turn around to Jesus and say, What were you talking about? And they probably wish they hadn't asked that. Because what Jesus says to them next isn't exactly affirming. Nor encouraging. Look at verse 18. Are you dull? Are you so dull? Sticks and stones again. bit harsh. But clearly Jesus expected his disciples to have a better understanding of these issues. And so what Jesus then decides to do. He decides to opt for plain logic rather than parable. And so he offers them a brief and basic biology lesson on the working of the human body. It's all there in verses eighteen and nineteen. And Jesus says, Listen, when you eat food, it goes no it goes into your stomach. And eventually it goes out of your body as waste. It doesn't go anywhere near your heart. Therefore what you eat doesn't actually Matter in terms of your spiritual state and in terms of your rightness before God. Now, again, before any dietitians or health-conscious people get up and leave, please note that Jesus was speaking about their spiritual condition, not their physical state, at least for the time being. But you know what the problem we face is this, or the problem we have is this? We now live in a society where people are far more concerned and worried about what is in their diets than what is in their hearts. And Jesus then makes his final point. Although this is a recurring theme right throughout scripture, and it's a theme Jesus will pick up again and again on. He says that it's out of the heart that all this mess spills out. And he lists the mess. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It all stems from in here. And therefore, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And if that was all that was ever said, we would be left in a very hopeless place. But you know what is so brilliant about the gospel that we as a church have to share? What is so liberating? What is so freeing? Is the discovery that actually Jesus came to change hearts. Do you know, I can do all the external ritual stuff. Or at least I can try to. The don't do this don't do that, don't eat this, don't drink that. I can do legalism, and I can do it really well. In fact, I can almost do it to a Pharisaic standard. But you know the one thing I can't do? I can't change my heart. Only Jesus can change my heart. But that is where my hope lies. My hope lies in the reality that it's not about what I do. It's not about what I don't do. It's actually about accepting what Jesus has done and can do for me. And here were a bunch of people who were just all into performance-related religion. It was all about what they could do, all about who they could impress. And Jesus sees right through it. And the challenge for us is every bit as real as it was for these guys way back then. That as we come into a place like this and as we offer our worship that Jesus sees into our hearts. and He says, listen, it's out of the heart that all this stuff spills out and therefore you need to change your heart and therefore how is your heart this morning? The question that Sarah started our service by asking is how is your heart this morning? See, there are four dangers. Pretending to be something you're not. Worshipping in vain, devaluing God's word, and ignoring the condition of your heart. Those were four dangers then, those are four dangers now. The next incident is uh, is an odd one at so many levels. The place is odd, the people are strange, the riddles are beyond me. Uh, An initial reading of Mark chapter 7 verses 24 to 30 tends to leave you rather confused. Uh, But it's a key incident, and the fact Mark records it immediately after the previous one is no accident, I, I reckon. Jesus heads into Gentile territory, and that would have wound the Pharisees up for a start. But the fact that he then entered a house to find some peace and quiet would have really annoyed that Jewish sect. But what happens from here on in would have sent shockwaves through their entire belief system. Because a Greek woman falls at the feet of Jesus, and that breaks all the rules of tradition. Because it's the wrong thing to do, she's the wrong religion, in fact she's the wrong gender. And as far as it, a cipher phoenician woman was concerned, her need, her need was of far greater importance than protocol or tradition. And in Jesus, here was a woman who sensed or saw hope. And therefore she fell at his feet as a mark of submission and deep humility. All the externals were wrong. From a certain perspective. But from an internal perspective, everything was right. And you see, that's the way God sees us. Because man looks on the outward appearance. We know this. But God observes the heart. And I don't know where you're at this morning and how you've come to church. And whether you are here and you perceive your need of Jesus. But you're not exactly sure, how do I approach him? Well then, can I suggest you follow the example of this woman? That you come as you are, but you come in hope and in faith and in submission, and don't get too hung up what others think of you. And the dialogue that follows is really strange, but it's for another time. That's the beauty of this series. I can't cover everything, so I might as well leave the tricky bits uncovered. <laughs> We're up to Incident 32. Incident 32. In Mark's gospel, which involves a popular man who's got a double disability. He's not only deaf, but he also suffers from a speech defect. Uh, it says he can hardly talk. And I say he's, he's popular because notice that he's brought to Jesus by people, a group of people. It's not just brought to Jesus by one person or even by one family. And the role of friends and the importance of others in bringing people to Jesus should never be missed. Remember the four friends in chapter 2 who brought their paralytic friend to Jesus. Do you know I have friends who need Jesus? I actually have lots of friends who need Jesus. The question I often ask myself is what am I doing to bring them to Jesus? And the people begged Jesus to to, to place his hand on him. They don't specifically ask for healing. They just ask Jesus to place his hand on him. Because they clearly believe that a simple touch from Jesus will transform this man's life. They were probably aware that this is how Jesus usually dealt with the sick. But what Jesus did in this case was a bit strange. First of all, he takes the man aside Away from the crowd. And then he sticks his fingers in the man's ears. He spits and he touches his tongue. And the level of intimacy is relatively intense. And Jesus deals with this man in a very personal way, a very unique way. And as I thought about that and as I've looked back over the various incidents we've considered to date, particularly those times whenever Jesus healed people, I was struck by the different approaches Jesus takes and adopts. There is no one size fits all. In chapter 1, Jesus takes Simon's mother-in-law by the hand. Later on in the same chapter, he reaches out to touch a man with leprosy. In chapter 2, when healing a paralytic man, there's no contact. Jesus simply speaks words of healing, words of forgiveness into the man's life. In chapter 5, a woman is healed by creeping up behind Jesus and reaching out herself to touch his cloak. A little later in the same chapter, Jesus walks for miles. He takes a little girl by the hand while speaking Aramaic, the girl's mother tongue. And he sends most people out of that situation as well, apart from a select few. And now here in chapter 7, he doesn't allow anybody else in in the incident as he heals this deaf and this mute man in a very private way. I was trying to get my head. Why is that? Why does Jesus deal with people so individually? Why is there no predictable method, no preset formula? Why is it at times very gentle and unobtrusive, whereas at other times it's extreme and maybe even slightly odd? And the only conclusion I can come to is that Jesus does actually engage with us personally as he determines a transformational encounter with Jesus was the unifying factor but each person's story was different each experience was varied and so I suppose the question I'm just left with and the question I want to ask us this morning is this what is your personal story of Jesus what is your own experience of an encounter with Jesus And the likelihood is, it is different from every other person in this room. And that is okay. And the text says that the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And no wonder, as it says in verse 37, people were overwhelmed, people were amazed. But it's the next phrase that sort of stands out for me. Jesus, they say, he's done everything well. He doesn't do it as we expect. And Jesus often doesn't do everything we want. But whatever Jesus does, he does it well. Move on. Into chapter 8. But as you read the first 13 verses of chapter 8, is there not a sense of deja vu? We've been here before. And that's certainly what some people think. Some scholars are pretty convinced that this event is exactly the same or one and the same as the event we looked at last week from chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. But Mark starts his record by saying, during those days another large crowd gathered. So it seems this may be a different occasion. And as you read down the details, there are quite distinct differences. There's two more loaves. There are seven this time. There's a thousand less men. And there are five fewer baskets left over. But there's two things that are exactly the same and one of them is not surprising and one of them actually is shocking. Or at least I think it is. And the unsurprising element is the compassion of Jesus. It seems that these people had gone for food for, or without, for, or without food for three days. And during the past 72 hours they had travelled some distance and now they find themselves in this really remote and isolated location. And Jesus gathers his disciples around him and he says this, I have compassion for these people. And remember, and we've said this a number of times in the past few months, compassion is not where you feel sorry for someone. Because generally speaking, all of us have compassion for people. We often feel sorry for others. At least I do. But true compassion, Christ-like compassion, has two aspects to it. And Some refer to these as the heart and the hands of compassion. And the first aspect is the emotion of compassion. It's where the heart is engaged. It's where the heart, as this image uh, portrays, it's where the heart melts. It's where it churns you up on the inside. And so you really feel for the people you meet who are in need. But then, and this is the crucial dimension, emotion must lead to action. And that's the second aspect. It's where we actually enter into the suffering of another person. It's where you don't just stop at the emotion. It's where you roll your sleeves up and you reach out your hands and you touch and you serve and you care for and you alleviate and you draw alongside and you put an arm round. And that is Christ-like. Compassion and Jesus expressed it. But the surprising element of this story for me is the disciples' response to Jesus in verse 4. Where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Yes, with some bread, with seven loaves, but where in this remote place are we going to get enough bread to feed 4,000 plus people? Now, given what had happened. A chapter ago. Which in time can't have been that long ago. And given the similarity of the moment. Surely you would have expected the disciples to have learnt their lesson from experience. Jesus did this before. He can do it again. But that's not how the disciples react. It's not how they respond. They're back at a place of wondering, back at a place of questioning, back at a place of worrying, which seems to me surprising, maybe even slightly disappointing. Or is it? Because before I'm too hard on these guys, is there not a sense that I find myself in a similar place all the time? Do you know, I know what Jesus can do. I've even seen what Jesus can do in a person's life. And yet, in the situation I'm facing at the moment, in my current dilemma, in my current difficulties, I actually have so many questions. And I wonder can I trust Jesus this time? The 4,000 get fed. And another valuable lesson is learnt. And I'm nearly done. Because then the Pharisees show up for their fourth encounter. And again they come with questions. But what Mark records for us is the real reason for them showing up. Because it actually says there that they have come to test Jesus. You see there was no intention to learn. There was no intention to discover. They just wanted to catch jesus out and jesus knew it and so he sighs deeply that's what it says he sighs deeply because questions from genuine searchers are really important but tests from cynics and skeptics are difficult to take and how we approach jesus does it seem to me matter that if you come in simple faith well do you know you might just see a miracle But if you come in deep suspicion, then like the Pharisees, you're probably going to end up seeing nothing. No miracles, no signs, no pointers. And Jesus and his disciples leave. And after a warning regarding the Pharisees and Herod, and a conversation about bread of all things, Jesus then asks the disciples four questions. This is where we're going to finish. Almost. He asks actually more than four questions, but there are four key ones. Because out of his experience, again, his fourth experience in Mark's Gospel with the Pharisees, he's really struck by their hard hearts. But as you read these four questions, you actually discover that Jesus is also slightly concerned about his disciples' growth and development. And so he asks them these four questions Do you still not see? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes, but you fail to see, and you've got ears, but you fail to hear? And don't you remember? And then Jesus then refers back to the two crowd-feeding miracles, which they had been very much a part of. And he finishes this little dialogue with him with a rather pointed question, which is virtually a repeat of the first question. He says to them, do you still not understand? And you can almost sense his disappointment and sense his sadness. They've spent so much time with Jesus. They've heard so much. They've seen so much. And yet their lack of insight must have frustrated the life out of Jesus. But here is the point I just want to finish on. Jesus was patient with them. Because he knew they were still learning. And he knew there had lots of mistakes still to make. And he knew they were still not where they should be or what they should be. But Jesus had plans for them. And he cared about them. And though their faith was weak, it was real. And so Jesus didn't abandon them. He just kept speaking into their lives. And challenging them. And calling them forward. And calling them on. Deeper into relationship with him. And you know, as we continue in our journey with Jesus, there will be times when we miss the point. I honestly confess, I seem to miss the point most of the time. I don't see it, I don't hear it, I don't understand, I don't remember. But whenever we're in that place where we just don't get it, I honestly believe that provided we stay close. And provided we remain teachable, then every contact we will have with Jesus will leave a trace of Jesus on us. So hang in there. Wherever you're at this morning on your journey with Jesus, hang in there and keep learning. Nine questions for you to finish. Uh, Do this each week. Or at least I did this the first week and then I've got myself stuck in doing this. Uh, But here we go. Nine questions. If you do want a copy of these, then please do drop me an email. Why is hypocrisy such an issue? How do you guard against worshipping in vain? What aspects of your faith and practice are more influenced and determined by tradition than by scripture? How do you gauge the condition of your heart? How did you approach Jesus this morning? Which friends of yours need to meet Jesus and maybe you could add on to that and how am I going to bring them to Jesus? Why is true compassion so difficult to express? What situation in your life needs another miracle? And why is trusting Jesus so tough sometimes in light of all we know and all we have experienced of him?